0: It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Thursday, June 10th, 2021. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. A popular beach for clam digging near Sitka is showing dangerous levels of the toxin that causes paralytic shellfish poisoning. Carrie Lamphere manages the Southeast Alaska Tribal Ocean Research Lab in Sitka. She says a sample of blue mussels from Stargavin Bay tested on Tuesday, June 8th, showed levels of the PSP toxin above the regulatory limit. Lamphere says blue mussels are an indicator species and elevated levels of toxins are likely to appear in other popular shellfish as well. So they're the first to pick up the toxins in in the water. So once the blue mussels go above the regulatory limit, is going we start to expect the other species, cockles, little necks, butter clams. They will follow suit after blue mussels. Lamphere says there is sufficient paralytic shellfish poisoning present to make humans ill. The toxin cannot be cooked, cleaned, or frozen out of shellfish. Anyone with questions can call the Sitka Tribe of Alaska at 966-9650. An estimated 11,000 gallons of sewage spilled onto the beach and into the Sitka Channel when the aging Brady Lift Station developed a leak in April. When the Sitka Assembly met on Tuesday, it unanimously approved emergency funding to repair the leak. The repairs are estimated to cost up to $80,000 and will take place in September. The contractor that operates the lift station contacted Public Works on April 22nd to notify city staff of the leak. The city notified the Environmental Protection Agency and the State Department of Conservation about the spill, which continued for several days until the sewage was rerouted on April 26th. The city had to get a special permit from the State Department of Fish and Game for running the bypass pipe across an anadromous stream. Wrangell hasn't held a King Salmon Derby since 2017. But this year, the borough's Chamber of Commerce is bringing back the historic competition for its 66th running. The chamber's outgoing director, Stephanie Cook, says the community reaction has primarily been excitement.
1: So we're hoping for a good turnout. You um, know, it's been a while since we've had a King Salmon Derby, and I know people have loved it um, in the past. It's obviously not going to be to the scale as it was before, um, because we're just you know starting out again, and it'll be definitely smaller. But um, We're looking forward to it and hopeful that we have a great derby.
0: Patrick Fowler is the Alaska Department of Fishing Game Area Manager for sport fishing around Petersburg and Wrangell. He explains that communities across southeast have had to cancel king derbies or switch the focus to silvers.
1: Southeast
2: Alaska Wild King Salmon Stock are are basically doing terrible. Um, And we've implemented a kind of a suite of management actions uh, in both the commercial and sport fisheries. Our harvest of Southeast Alaska wild stocks. And so that's, you know, beginning in, what was it? I think it was 2017, off the top of my head, we started taking pretty restrictive action in the, uh, across Southeast, but especially in the Wrangell area.
0: Things haven't improved in the years since. Ketchikan's King Salmon Derby organizers elected to back off of derby plans this year over continued concerns about wild Chinook stocks in Southeast. It's not to say that ADF&G did, or even can, force communities to not run king derbies. Both Ketchikan and Wrangell run what are called unsanctioned derbies, where the sport-caught fish aren't allowed to be sold. Wrangell's King Salmon Derby and any other unsanctioned derby just have to operate under the area's current sport fishing regulations. Fowler says that most of the districts in the Wrangell area open to retention of kings on June 15th. The first place fish in the Wrangell Derby will take home $3,000 this year, with $2,000 and $1,000 for the second and third place salmon, respectively. During the drought in southeast Alaska a few years ago, a small insect called a sawfly ate the needles off of about a half a million acres of hemlock trees in the Tongass National Forest. But as Claire Stremple reports for Alaska's Energy Desk, scientists say most trees should recover.
1: good view.
0: (laughs) We pull off the road about
2: 25 miles north of downtown Juneau and stand in the rain looking at partially dead trees.
1: But you can see there's probably you know in this little stand right here about 30 dead tops that I can see just on this little hillside.
2: Elizabeth Graham is an entomologist with the National Forest Service. She points out some peaked looking hemlocks.
1: And that's a good example of what we're seeing in other places. Not every tree affected Uh, But, you know, a small portion.
2: Dead crowns in the canopy and rusty colored branches are woven in with the otherwise healthy green temperate rainforest. About a third of the trees around here were hit by the voracious sawfly. The larvae get mistaken for caterpillars. Adults are a kind of non-stinging wasp, a little smaller than a pinky finger. In 2018 and 2019, drought conditions allowed the hemlock sawfly to thrive in southeast Alaska. Now, they're mostly done eating the needles off of hemlock trees. But the damage from their two-year feast is still apparent.
1: And when I was doing these stories two years ago, I told everyone, oh, none of the trees are going (laughs) to die, you know, it's just a defoliator.
2: Some trees are going to die. They lost a lot more needles than she thought they would. But Graham says sawflies are nothing like the spruce beetle, a really lethal pest if you're a tree.
1: The message I was originally just trying to get out was, you know, it's not going to be that bad, but um, it made me a liar. So I apologize for that.
2: Bear, sad-looking hemlocks are going to stick out a bit in Juneau, Western Admiralty, Northern Prince of Wales, and Mitkoff and Kupernoff Islands. But the Forest Service isn't taking any action beyond monitoring because the ecosystem is sorting things out on its own. Soffle isn't an invasive species. Its larvae slowed down naturally because rain came back to the region after two years of drought conditions. The rain brought a fungus that infects the sawfly and controls the population. But Graham says it's still a big deal. This is the biggest fly outbreak on record since the 1950s.
1: When we saw this outbreak, and, and I saw it from the plane in 2019, uh, the only way I can describe it is impressive. When the
2: Forest Service began to track the fly feeding frenzy, they observed about 50,000 acres of the Tongass were affected. A year later, aerial surveys showed that the number had ballooned to half a million acres.
1: the The thing that, like I keep repeating to remember, is you know that it is a natural part of our our ecosystem, um, and you know we're hoping that the impacts will be
2: minimal. Scientists are tracking the damage. They want to know the extent of the forest affected and how many trees don't pull through. Scientists spent last year monitoring the outbreak via satellite, since COVID-19 meant they couldn't get in small planes together for aerial surveys. There are drawbacks to monitoring a tiny insect from space. But the images did give scientists a sense of where to look when they're back in the air this summer. And they're hoping there won't be much new activity to see. Reporting in Juneau for Alaska's Energy Desk, I'm
3: Claire Stremple.
0: The National Park Service is planning two projects in the Skagway area. KHNS's Mike Swayze has the story.
3: The Chilkoot Trail is one of Skagway's most iconic attractions. Tourists from across the globe come to retrace the footsteps of gold seekers racing to Dawson City over the rugged mountain trail during the Klondike Gold Rush of 1898. The area in line for upgrades includes an interpretive map a rustic outhouse, and a couple of dirt parking lots that get overwhelmed during busy summer seasons. There are multiple upgrade plans being considered by the National Park Service, and they include a new visitor kiosk, a restroom, a river overlook, bike racks, benches, interpretive panels, a passenger drop-off zone, and improved parking. Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park Superintendent, Angela Watts says steps have been taken to reduce impacts on rare plants and animals like the Boreal toad.
0: One of the, the mitigations that we've taken when we were looking at different alternatives and designs was to, to move it as closely as we could to that, that bridge side so that we could get out of the, the prime toad habitat. There are some rare plants in there as well, which would include like a, an orchid and a violet, and those can be transplanted.
3: Watts acknowledges that the Taya River is constantly eroding the riverbank and changing the river's course, but she says the area they are considering for the upgrades shouldn't be affected.
0: The USGS did a study on the, the movement of the river and the hydrology of the area, and that is an area that it's not expected to to cut into the bank um, like we see over in the old Dye town site.
3: The plans and environmental impact studies are available for review and public comment at parkplanning.nps.gov. The public comment period closes on June 21st, and there will be a public presentation of the plans at the historic William Moore Cabin on 5th and Spring Street in Skagway on June 15th at 6 pm. Another project the Park Service is planning is a new dormitory in the downtown historic district of Skagway which will house up to 12 seasonal park employees. But the project is facing pushback from members of Skagway's Planning and Zoning Commission. On Tuesday night, the Park Service argued three relief requests in front of the Skagway Board of Appeals. They won one appeal, which allows them to build the dormitory without a fence. They lost an appeal about reducing the size of two of the four parking spaces allotted for the tenants. And the last appeal is still undecided, which involves how many feet need to be between a fire escape window and the property line. The dormitory will be located on the corner of 4th Avenue and Broadway Street, with the front of the building facing 4th Ave. Watts says she hopes construction will start by the end of June. Reporting from Skagway, I'm Mike Swayze.
0: I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.